Hey guys, and welcome to a new episode. This is your host, Mohamed Halaba, and we'll get started. What is the differential for T2 dark renal lesion? This is a review question. We said, got three things for T2 dark renal lesion, lipid poor AML, hemorrhagic cyst, and papillary RCC. Again, the differential for T2 dark renal lesion is lipid poor AML, hemorrhagic cyst, and papillary RCC. What is the differential for pineal masses? Four things, germinoma, pineoblastoma, pineocytoma, and pineal cyst. Again, differential for pineal masses, germinoma, pineoblastoma, pineocytoma, and pineal cyst. Germinoma would have fat and calcifications. Pineoblastoma can be associated with retinoblastoma. If so, then we need to consider trilateral retinoblastoma. Pineocytoma is non-invasive well-circumscribed mass with peripheral calcifications. And finally, pineal cyst is a cyst, but may contain calcifications, so it would have cyst signal characteristic, uh, unlike the other three that we mentioned. Again, germinoma would have fat and calcifications. Pineoblastoma can be associated with retinoblastoma. Pineocytoma, peripheral uh, calcifications, and pineal cyst can contain calcification, but has cyst-like signal characteristics. Review question, fibroxanthoma, refer to what? This is a general term that we say describes a non-ossifying fibroma and fibrous cortical defect. The difference between non-ossifying fibroma, that is the size, non-ossifying fibroma is typically greater than two centimeters. Fibrous cortical defect is less than two centimeter and fibroxanthoma is the term that describes both. What is the effect of increasing the KVP? of x-rays. So when we increase KVP, meaning we're increasing the energy of the x-rays, which means we'll have more x-rays penetrate. So increasing the x-ray KVP will increase penetrance of x-rays through material. Now in standard radiography or projection radiography, this will lead to decreased dose because we will have more x-rays penetrating through the patient over a shorter period of time, which decreases the total exposure of an image. Again, if increasing KVP will decrease dose because we'll have higher number of x-rays penetrating through the patient, so we do not have to expose the patient for the same amount of radiation. Again, we increase the beam energy such we increase the penetrance, and so we do not have to keep to keep the exposure for as long to get the same amount of exposure. The photo timer on the detector will close the exposure or shorten the exposure time once it gets enough x-ray penetration. This is a classic question. A sausage shape enhancing tumor in the phylum terminale. Diagnosis is ependymoma. Again, a sausage shape enhancing tumor in the phylum is ependymoma, typically T2 bright with some enhancement. This is diagnostic of ependymoma. Imaging features of intracranial epidermoid cyst. So this is a cyst or collection that has similar characteristics to CSF on T1 and T2, but restricts on diffusion because of dead or keratinizing cyst or content. Again, the key thing is it follows CSF signal on T1 and T2, but restricts diffusion. On exam, they might want to differentiate between an epidermoid cyst and arachnoid cyst. And the key thing that arachnoid cyst will follow CSF signal on all sequences, including DWI and flare imaging. Epidermoid cyst will restrict on diffusion.
Now, it's important not to confuse epidermoid cyst with a dermoid cyst. Dermoid cyst, key feature in the brain is its fat content. So again, dermoid cyst contains a lot of fat and it will have fat-related signal characteristics on CT scan and MRI. Epidermoid cysts do not typically contain fat. They can have some unsaturated fatty acids or triglyceride, and this is known as a white epidermoid, and it would be T1 bright, but typically classic feature that dermoid cysts contain fat, epidermoid cyst does not contain fat, and it would restrict on diffusion. Arachnoid cysts will follow CSF signal characteristics on all sequences. Twist that occurs along the short plane of the stomach or along the plane perpendicular to the long axis of the stomach, meaning line communicating between the lesser curvature and the greater curvature. This would be as if the stomach was a book and we're closing the book along its short axis. This is defined as mesoenteroaxial volvulus and it is common with chronic symptoms and typically not associated with diaphragmatic defect as opposed to organoaxial volvulus. So mesenteroaxial volvulus occurs along the short axis of the stomach where the stomach would flip as if we're closing a book. When compared to organoaxial volvulus, this is twisting of the stomach along its long axis that is more associated with diaphragmatic defects and is also associated with vascular compromise. Again, organoaxial volvulus is associated with diaphragmatic hernia and vascular compromise. On different resources, there have been confusion of vascular compromise. Some resources have actually mentioned that mesenteroaxial axis is associated with vascular compromise because it is associated with the twisting of the mesentery. However, the majority of resources report that it's the organoaxial axis that is associated with vascular compromise. And that's the answer. If I were to choose in a test, I would select that organoaxial axis is associated with vascular compromise as opposed to mesenteroaxial, even though the mesenteroaxial make more sense that we're twisting along the mesentery and so the blood supply coming from the mesentery would be compromised. But very, very few resources mentioned that to be an association. Subtle differences between steady-state free procession imaging and T2 bright imaging when evaluating pericardial effusion. So technically on T2, fluid should be bright, and on steady-state free procession, also fluid would be bright. The issue comes in that uh, steady-state free procession procession imaging uh, takes less time and so there is less image degradation by heart movement and so we're able to see fluid. With T2 weighted imaging this takes a longer acquisition time and so the heart motion can blur the pericardial effusion and make it look like that there is no cardial effusion even though that fluid is typically bright on T2 weighted image. Free steady state free procession is a very fast imaging technique and it is good for evaluating uh, vascular structures, and we're able to see that fluid is bright. Again, the difference, bet- another difference between T2 imaging and steady-state free procession is that steady-state uh, free procession imaging is called blood-bright sequence, meaning both fluid and blood are bright on that sequence. On T2, just fluid is bright on that sequence. Imaging features associated with pediatric intussusception. So on x-ray or radiograph, what we may see is absence of cecal air or bowel gas pattern consistent with obstruction. Additionally, may we may see a right lower quadrant soft tissue mass. On ultrasound, 
we see the characteristic target or pseudo-kidney sign, which represent alternating layers of bowel wall and mesenteric fat. This would be consistent with intussusception. Again, on radiograph or pediatric intussusception, we might see absence of cecal air or image finding consistent with bowel obstruction, such as air fluid levels and dilated small bowel or a right lower quadrant mass. On ultrasound, what we see is the target or pseudo-kidney sign, which represent alternating layers of bowel wall and mesenteric fat. Most common location for pediatric intussusception to be symptomatic is in the right lower quadrant. What is the falciform ligament sign or the football sign? This is a sign associated with pneumoperitoneum when there is large amount of free air in the abdomen on a sopine radiograph, the free air would surround the liver, anterior to the liver, and it would surround the falciform ligament. So we would see air on both sides of the falciform ligament, which would look like a football with a line in the middle. American football, that is. Again, the falciform ligament sign or football sign is a sign associated with large amount of free abdominal air, which would surround the falciform ligament. Common structures that enhance after administration of IV CT contrast for brain CT scan. So commonly we see enhancement of the venous sinuses, choroid plexus, and pituitary gland and stock. Why is this important is if we're evaluating for intracranial hemorrhage or active extravasation, we need to make sure that what we're looking at is not venous sinuses, choroid plexus, pituitary gland, or pituitary stock, because these can normally enhance. What is the finger in glove sign? This is a sign associated with allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, typically seen in long-standing asthmatics. And what we see is upper lobe predominant uh, saccular bronchiectasis, meaning dilation of the uh, bronchi bronchiectasis with mucoid impaction. So the dilated uh, ectatic bronchi are filled with mucus, and that gives us the appearance of finger in glove. This can be seen on both x-ray and CT scan. Again, finger and glove associated with allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, typically seen in long-standing asthmatics, and it is upper lobe predominant finding. What is supracondylar process? Another term for it is avian spur. This is a bony projection anterior on the anterior medial aspect of the humerus, approximately 5 centimeter from the medial epicondyle. This points downward and forward can be associated with brachial artery and median nerve compression. Again, supracondylar process or avian spur is a bony projection along the anterior medial aspect of the humerus, 5 centimeter above the elbow or, or medial epicondyle, and it is directed downward and forward. This is important uh, characteristic that it points downward and forward, and if there is fibroligament attachment or ligamentous attachment can lead to brachial artery and median nerve compression. The term shepherd crook deformity, again shepherd crook deformity is associated with what typically it's used to describe the femur shape or the femoral neck shape associated with fibrous dysplasia can also be used to describe that appearance with Paget's disease or osteogenesis imperfecta. So it's not a specific term. Again, shepherd crook deformity refers to the shape of the femoral head. The proximal femoral head can be seen in association with fibrous dysplasia, Paget's disease, and osteogenesis imperfecta. What is epiploic appendagitis? So epiploic appendagitis is basically torsion of the colonic fatty appendages 
These are the fatty structures hanging along the side of the colon. It can mimic diverticulitis in appearance because we'll see inflammatory fatty inflammation around the descending colon, can present with uh, pain, and on CT scan, we see pericolic fatty containing mass with well-circumscribed hyperattenuating rim. This is referred to as the ring sign. There can be a central engorged or thrombosed vessel. As we said, there's a torsion in the fat typically seen in the left colon. And on imaging, they want us to distinguish it from two things. One is diverticulitis, and the second thing is omental infarct. Typically, omental infarcts are bigger and seen on the right lower quadrant or right side. Epiploic appendagitis is small and seen on the left side and overall associated or adjacent to colon. Treatment is basically anti-inflammatory medication, so ibuprofen or NSAIDs, and no antibiotics. Again, they want us to distinguish this from appendicitis, which the colon should have diverticular, uh, sorry, they want us to distinguish this from diverticulitis and in diverticulitis, the colon needs to have multiple diverticula or diverticulosis. And for a mental infarct, this is in close proximity to the colon because it is rotation of the fat around the colon in epicloic appendagitis. On a mental infarct, it's not associated with the colon, can be anywhere and is typically larger than the epiploic appendagitis. What do we call cranial nerve number five? Cranial nerve number five is the trigeminal nerve. What do we call cranial nerve number six? The abducent nerve. What about cranial nerve number seven? This is the facial nerve. I think they also refer to it as the intermediate nerve. And cranial nerve number eight is the vestibulocochlear. Again, trigeminal is number five. Abducent is number six. Facial is number seven. And vestibulocochlear is number eight. We'll end with this question. What is the location of juvenile nasopharyngeal angiofibroma, GNA? This is located in the sphenopalatine foramen or adjacent to the sphenopalatine foramen. Again, the location of juvenile nasopharyngeal angiofibroma is the sphenopalatine foramen. I hope you guys are benefiting. Hopefully you can uh, subscribe, share the podcast and rate it so more people benefit from it.